everybody, to episode 188, Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry. I am your host, Jeff Bowdrin. They call me the booker. That would make a great title for a book. Don't you agree, Barry? That, that would be an amazing title. So if they call you the booker, what do they call me, Jeff? They call you a lot of names, but that's oh, another shit. story altogether. All a right. shout out to my man, David Jordan, who, Barry, recently purchasing a book, had me write a message to our old friend, John Doe. I'm sure it's going to show up on the old Facebook page. Anyway, on this episode, a couple of announcements. Right away, we want to say that part two of our interview with Sean Waltman, X-Pac, one, two, three kids, six, he's got a bunch of different nom de plumes, going to be put off till next week. And the reason we are doing that, Barry, is because we have a certifiable wrestling legend from the territorial days, though he did. Oh, hold work. on. I'm checking it. I'm checking. Let me check the book. Uh, yeah, he's right here. It, it has been certified. Okay, it is certified. Okay, yes, it has official. been certified. We have got, and I guess more newer fans would know him as Bunkhouse Buck. We have the great Jimmy Golden joining us today. That is right. We want to thank our friend Nick Massey for hooking us up with uh, Jimmy Golden, who I believe, Barry, does he not have an appearance coming up with Nick? He does. He has two appearances, Jeff. One is going to be virtual. That's taking place on Saturday night. May the 15th at 7 p.m., Jimmy is going to have photos, autographs, and even some ring gear that he will be auctioning off. And then he's got a live appearance taking place the next day, which, of course, will be May the 16th at Heroes Hideout, which is in Albany, New York. That is 11 to 2 o'clock. And, Jeff, I will be there for that. I was going to say there was going to be a special guest appearance yes. by someone <laughs> near and dear to your hearts. Yes, indeed. Mr. Rose will be available. Autographs, photos, uh, 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 you, ring, ring used merchandise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, so anyway, uh, I do also want to mention part two of our Q&A segment. So if you didn't get your question answered the first time, let's hope it's in this part of the segment. Barry, what do you say we go to our interview with wrestling legend Bunkhouse Buck? No, 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 not Bunkhouse Buck. It's just Jimmy Golden. Let's go there, Bear. Barry, how lucky are we today to be joined by Jimmy Golden, a member of wrestling's most famous family in the history of wrestling, the, the Golden Fuller Welch family. Barry, how cool is that? Let me tell you what's so cool about this, too. When I saw that our good friend Nick Massey was uh, doing a, a two autograph signings with Jimmy Golden, one will be a virtual, one will be an in-person the first thing I said to Nick was, you've got to get Jimmy Golden to at least give us 30 or 45 minutes where we can talk to him, because Jimmy was part of an angle in the state of Florida in 1975 that was one of my favorites of all time. And then I even said to Nick, Nick, I want to work with you in Albany with Jimmy at his table because I'm such a fan of the guy. That's how excited I am, Jeff. So, well, Jimmy, first of all, thank you so much for joining us, sir. Well, I'm glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, and if you don't mind, I'm going to talk a little old school wrestling with you today. So, uh, Barry, tell us, when do you show as Jimmy's first appearance in CWF? Yeah, absolutely. Jimmy was, I show 1973, and looks like Jimmy came in, and he was immediately aligned with his cousins, Ron and Robert Fuller, and he and Robert had formed a tag team, and they were in the finals of a Florida tag team tournament. As it turns out, if I'm correct, Jimmy and Ron actually won the Florida Tag Team titles a week later. So uh, Jimmy goes back. I mean, Jimmy's been around for a while. Jimmy goes back to the early 70s in Florida. Which is amazing, Jimmy, considering you're such a young guy. 
Thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you, you got to pander to your guest a little bit early on, you know. So, yeah, so you, do you, do you recall uh, the early days of uh, working CWF there in the uh, the early to mid seventies? Yeah, you know, I first went down there. It was uh, seventy two, I guess, something like that. Eddie Graham was still there, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, Eddie Graham was uh, the promoter, and uh, you know, stayed a, stayed a while there, wrestled there, won the championship, uh, had a great time. Ended up going to Australia before the year was out. So, fonder memory of Florida was it the paychecks or the women, or the or the weather? Well, just, <laughs> yeah, it was all good. <laughs> it was all good, man. Uh, now, it did get a little hot at times. You know, it's it's a little hot in the summertime down there. But, heck, you in Florida. It was a great wrestling territory. And, and at that particular time, you know, Jack Briscoe was a champion there. And Dory Funk Jr. coming in, uh, defending his title. I mean, they had some great talent. And, they, heck, I felt honored. I was part of it. Yeah, absolutely, too. So you mentioned Eddie Graham. And- Eddie was on, you know, day to day. And I would imagine when you were in, it was either Leo Garibaldi or Louis Tillette was probably doing the booking. Yeah. Louis, yeah. Louis, Louis was, was gotcha. And, and, and it was, and uh, Leo it was there too. Oh, was Leo? Oh, so were they, were they transitioning at that time or? Uh, I, I don't, I think Louis was the main booker, but Leo was there with, uh, to help if he needed to be and was a referee. At gotcha. That time, that's he right. was one of the officials. So, I mean, you know, from the, the ground up, they were loaded. Yeah, they used to bill uh, Leo Garibaldi as the special troubleshooting referee, meaning that when Leo was refing, there was always something going to take place. But there was so much talent in the state at that time. You had Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods, as you had mentioned, Jack Briscoe, who was the world's heavyweight champion. Paul Jones was also there during that time. But so. What kind of interactions did you have with two people that immediately come to mind for me? One was Cowboy Luttrell, who was Eddie's partner at the time. And then, of course, the great Gordon Soley. I did business with Gordon a lot. I didn't do a lot with Cowboy Luttrell. I know he was there, but I didn't see him a lot. Gordon was always there for the TVs and everything. And then there was there was another guy called Dusty Rhodes that, was <laughs> Who? that I worked with in, in the main event in Fort Lauderdale one night. It was sold out. I was scared to death. So the the beautiful Fort Lauderdale Armory, I'm sure you're referring to. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was sold out. Yeah. Because they, they come to see Dusty. They didn't come to see me. I was just a punk. <laughs> Well, let me ask you, you know, when your cousin Ron has talked about on his, uh, on his own show about working, you know, you, you had the, if you will, the major cities, Miami, Jacksonville, Orlando, and then Ron started out uh, working like Fort Myers and cities like that. Which circuit did they have you on the Fort Myers circuit or the, like the Miami and Jacksonville circuit? Uh, we, we worked them all. Okay. At that time, you, you may not be in, in, in every town every week. You know, because he, he had enough towns there to run. He had spot shows that they ran. So you might be in one of those, but, you know, I ended up working all those cities. 
Gotcha. So I'm going to ease into this. So I grew up watching CWF. I was born and raised in Miami Beach, Florida. And I saw your first run, but it was your second run, which would have been the late summer into the fall of 1975. That to me, this was magical. You were teaming primarily with the late Ricky Gibson. And you guys made a hell of a tag team, but you had a great feud with a couple other Tennessee boys, and that was the mass superstars with Sam Bass. Underneath the hoods were the late Don Green and a, a younger Jerry the King Lawler. And some of these matches were just, first off, Sam Bass, as a manager, this guy was just incredible. And it's a shame that really outside of Tennessee and for a brief time in Florida that people didn't get to see him because had he survived, he was in obviously in that, that fatal car accident a year later. That we're talking, I think this was one of the best managers I ever saw. But the way you and Ricky were able to work with Don Green and Lawler, this was professional wrestling. To me, this was so much fun. It was so exciting. This is why I'm super excited, first off, to have you on our, on our show, but to be able to meet you in person in Albany. And we should do a little plug for this, Jeff. Coming up, which was going to be May the 15th, for our old friend Nick Massey at Captain's Corner, going to be doing a virtual signing. This is Saturday, May the 15th, 7 p.m. start time. There's going to be photos. There's going to be posters. And Jimmy, I hear that you're bringing some ring-used gear as well. We know the fans love that. The next day, you're appearing for a live appearance, and I will be there for this one, at Heroes Hideout, which is in Albany, New York beginning at 11 o'clock, going roughly about 11 to 2 p.m. And I know that I'm super excited for that. But any memories of all of working in Florida in 1975 with Ricky Gibson and the Mass Superstars? Oh, yeah. Me and Ricky come up together in Louisiana as kids in the wrestling business. And then we got into this tag team situation in Florida later on that you're talking about with Jerry Lawler and Don Green. And and Ricky was like Jerry Lawler. Those two guys right there were magic. They were naturals for this business. And they were very exciting. And, of course, Don Green, like you said, being the veteran that he was, you know, man, all I had to do was just kind of tag along. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because they were really good. And like you said, we had some dadgum good matches, man. And so you couldn't keep from it. You got talent like that. So when you uh, when you talk about tag team partners and, uh, you know, obviously Ricky Gibson, great talent. But I was uh, doing some uh, checking up on your background, your wrestling background, and I saw that you had teamed up. I believe it was in Tennessee, a guy that we've never mentioned on this show. And today we're going to correct that. Tell us your memories of tagging up in Tennessee with Dennis Hall. Dennis was my first big break. Nick Goulas, bless his heart. I love him so. A lot of guys didn't, but I did. He gave me my first big break in the business, and he he put me with Dennis Hall. Dennis was another veteran like Don Green. He knew the ropes, and uh, he took me underneath his wing there, so to speak, and we worked this big angle, and it got over with a couple of guys named Lorenzo Perini and Gary Hart. Was it Gary or Bobby? Bobby Hart. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. Bobby, yeah. Bobby Hart. Gary Gary was a manager. Yes, exactly, right? yeah. Okay, this was Bobby Hart. I don't know if they was any kin or not, 
But the, uh, the Bobby Hart, he came from a wrestling family, too. But it, it, that's, that was my first big break at Dennis Hall. And, uh, man, he, he took me a long ways. And, and Barry, you said that uh, Dennis had uh, had wrestled some maybe under a hood in Florida. Is that correct? Yeah, so when, when Bob Orton Sr. was doing the Zodiac gimmick, which would have been the early 70s, he had Dennis Hall and Greg Peterson with him. And I want to say Dennis was Taurus. There was, I forget what the other name was, but a Dennis might have been Taurus. But then we saw, I think Dennis might have been in when you were in in Florida in 75 as well. We, we did see him again in 75 he was in, but uh, really solid worker. And as we were talking off air, was part of the kayfabe cousins. It was Dennis Hall, Roger Kirby, and Les Thatcher, which really, that's three guys right there. You, you can't go wrong with them, Jeff. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so was that uh, too far back? Uh, that was before you started in Florida there, Jim? No, probably about the same time. Dennis might have been there at the same time as me and working under the hood. Okay. Uh, I don't really remember that, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys there. Uh, and you don't always see them anymore. But Dennis was a heck of a worker, and, and I really appreciate his help getting me going. Yeah, and so you, you mentioned being in Australia, too, and this, this seems like this was the period where uh, yourself and I think Ron and Robert both went. I know Ron was there because we've talked to Ron about that, going over to Australia, and Jim Barnett obviously running Australia at that time or uh, having a hand in it. What are your memories of Australia? Because I was in Australia years ago, and I got to tell you, if I had the money or the resources, I, I might move to Australia full time. I just loved it there. But I'm imagining 1973 Australia had to be about the coolest place on earth. It was beautiful. It was like he says, a hell of a place, man. I'd live there too. The people were great, and of course they speak English. You know, you can talk to them. And uh, Jim Barnett was the promoter there. Buddy Fuller and Eddie Graham brought bought in with him, and and that's one big reason that I went. Went late '72, right before Christmas. Austin Idol came over. He was just starting. They tag-teamed me and him together, Mike McCord. Iron Mike McCord, they called him. And we was working with two guys called Dick Dunn and Don Carson. I don't know if you remember them. No, sure. Oh, absolutely, they man. Were two, they, they were two classics, man. So uh, we, we had a great time in Australia. So I was there two months. Went to Hong Kong for a week right after that before got got to come back home. And I was supposed to go back in 73, but had some problems. I didn't get to go back. That's a long story. Made a big mistake. But anyway, Australia was a nice place, and I loved every minute of it. Yeah. So, you know, for those people out there like myself that listen on a weekly basis to to Ron Fuller's Studcast, you know, what we hear talk uh, where Ron's at now, and I know that you know, your time when you were there, I know amongst others, you worked with Bob Orton Jr. and stuff, but did you enjoy your time working in Knoxville also? Oh, yeah. Knoxville was probably my favorite other than Pensacola, I guess. Easy territory to work, you know, get to come home every night. I was a single man and I was going to the bars every night, you know, chasing after these beautiful East Tennessee women. You know, and then that guy, I fooled around and fell in love. 
with one of them, you know? It bites all of us in the ass, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I'm still here. I'm still here in the hills of East Tennessee, which is a beautiful place. You can't beat it, really. So, you know, how lucky am I? Yeah, and I, and I know at the time that, that Ron's at, like right now in the stud cast, the, the territory was absolutely on fire. Uh, he was getting like uh, the upper 5,000s into the 6,000s in the, in the Civic Center uh, on a weekly basis, and he talks about how they were just tearing it up there. Oh, yeah. The talent was great. He had a long list of guys that were super, man. You know, Bob Roop, Ronnie Garvin, Boris Malenko. The list went on and on. Guys that wanted to come in, too. Uh, and he built it, man. He, he built it different from what it was. There was a different promoter here. And I had come for that promoter, John Kazanis, years ago out of Nashville and worked for him. And he had guys like Ron and Don Wright at the time still here, Whitey Caldwell. He had some good boys. But he ran things a little different from what Ron wanted to do. And Ron did a hell of a job of really really making it boom. Uh, So, Jimmy, were you working the territory when Whitey Caldwell died in the car accident? I wasn't in East Tennessee. I was probably in a different territory somewhere else, but I had heard about it. And Whitey Caldwell was a hell of a worker, man. He just—he was unbelievable. I, yeah. I thought I could—I had a little speed, and I could go. That boy could get it. He's old country boy from up around Morristown, Tennessee. But man, he had it in his bones, you know, in his blood. So spending so much time too in that area. Give us your best Ron Wright story <laughs> that, that you can tell on air. <laughs> yeah. Ron, Ron had some good ones. You know, Ron, Ron had a chisel. He'd hit you with that chisel. You ever heard about the chisel? Oh, but oh we've heard about the cello. About but yeah. tell us all about it, yes. The chisel, man, you put it around your, it's like a pair of brass knuckles that had a steel piece coming out of it. And if he hit you with that thing, buddy, you're going to bleed, I guarantee you. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to give he you a Tennessee a, dog whooping. Yeah, he he hit a bunch of guys with it, but he never got to me. Somehow I avoided that chisel. I dreaded it. I didn't want him to hit me with that chisel. <laughs> yeah, he hit right. me with that chisel. It's like Kevin Sullivan told him one night in Louisville, Kentucky, you hit me with that chisel and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I'm going to beat the hell out of you now, because it's going to be on then, buddy. But he, he hit a bunch of guys with it. Yeah, I know uh, Ron's, Ron's mentioned on the Studcast before that uh, Ron Wright had chased uh, him around the territory, and, and Ron, uh, Ron Fuller kept avoiding it, kept avoiding it, and then finally that night came where, where, uh, where Ron Wright got him with the chisel. Yeah, <laughs> and he was like, yeah. son of a bitch, he finally got me with that thing. And them, them old country boys, Ron and Don Wright, I've hit them in the top of the head as hard as I could, and they never budge, man. And I thought, you know, that <laughs> he'd bitch or something and never complain. They can take it. They can take it. And, and you were also, if I'm correct, too, you were in, as a matter of fact, I know that you were, you were in Tennessee working that territory in 1978 when the WFIA convention came to town. And that was a bunch of fans came from all over the world to see professional wrestling in Knoxville. And they had, and I was part of that. I was a, uh, geez, I was a 14 year old kid at the time, but full they had head of hair, full head of hair, still thin at that time. 
And they had the convention at the Hotel Andrew Johnson. And I don't know if you remember the Hotel Andrew Johnson. I don't know if it's still there. But boy, did we get a lot of stories out of there. But you, where I'm going with this, you were in the territory when the split occurred. Obviously, I'm talking about the big split with the Ron Fuller Southeastern promotion, which was NWA-backed. And then uh, a bunch of guys you just mentioned, Ronnie Garvin and, and Roop and uh, Malenko, all split off and formed, uh, I believe it was All-Star Wrestling. And then they merged with the PAFO group, which was ICW. So what, what was that like for you? Was that something that you had ever been a part of, like a wrestling war? Had you ever been a part of something like that before? No. No. And it was, it was uh, disappointing heartbreaker and and I can't say that I blame Garvin and Roop and Orton and them for splitting off you know it's a long story guys well we're we're willing to give you the time if you want to talk about it (laughs) well you know what it it screwed up a hellacious territory right okay we didn't have the fans anymore all of a sudden they knew it was a work Okay, where before we had them where they were well entertained. But now, now we didn't got them anymore. It's over. As I say, when you lose the suspension of disbelief, it's all over, right? That's it. Screwed it up. But, you know, it is what it is. It it happened. And I hate that it happened. And. And I was here at the time I came back from working for Jarrett and them over on the West End. Me and Robert came back to help his brother out. And it was one of my first times to turn heel. I turned heel to try to help him out with this opposition that they got all of a sudden. So if you don't mind me asking, not not necessarily on a permanent basis, but at least for a temporary uh, temporary basis, did you uh, end up losing friends, or did you try to stay friendly with the with the guys that that had split oh, no, off? Friends. Okay, we're, all right. We're, we're still friends now. Now, mind you, I went to the bar one Friday night after the matches, and Bob Roop and Bob Orton was in the same bar. And Bob Orton told me, "Now this is for real. Shoot, is it? I'm gonna slap shit out of your cousin." The only thing I had to say about that is, is that's gonna be real interesting. I hope I'm there to see it. (laughs) That never never happened. (laughs) But this this happened. I had a match with Dick Slater in the Civic Center, and Bob Orton and Root came down front row seat and sat down, and they kept jumping like they was going to come into the ring. And Slater's calling them everything in the book. Tell them, come on, get your damn asses in here. If you want to fight, and I'm going, Dicky, what the hell's going on here, man? You know, this is going to be a shoot here. And they never came. So we finished the match, and as soon as the match was over with, Slater slid right out of the ring and went right in their face. And the crowd swamped them. And the story was, I couldn't hear what was being said, but it, from what it looked like and what I heard was said, was Slater dared him to stand up. Nobody stood up. Yeah, Sl- Slater could be pretty salty. He had that rep. He did. He sure did. 
Yeah. So, but anyway, that's that's how it was pretty heavy. The challenges was going on that they was going to kick some ass. That they was going to the you know, Tehran and Robert. They started with them, and and they was going you did you know beat them up. So you know, it never really happened. But I saw Slater go up the top. Damn man, well, what the heck am I going to do if they come in the ring here? Shit's on, you know, it's going to beat me up, too. Of course, I've got to fight back. So, but anyway, you know, it. I, I didn't really lose any friends over it. I, I went to see Malenko with a bad back during the whole thing. I, I was having a real hard time with a back, and I was going to about have to quit, and Malenko was good with adjusting you. He's like a good chiropractor. Well, he he was Doctor Boris Malenko, you know. So uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was professor. <laughs> well, yeah, professor of chiropractic. <laughs> professor of chiropractic, exactly. Living the gimmick. Been around a long time, he he knew what was going on. So he, but he hooked you up, took care of you back. Oh yeah, yeah. He gave me a good adjustment. He told me what to do to try to get through it, to get get past this back pain I was having. I to do a lot of stretching, yoga. Yoga's the answer. Yeah. Do you do, do you, are you doing yoga currently as well? Oh, I, I do. I've been doing it for years ever since. Oh, wow. You, you know, not, not a lot, just enough to get by. Sure. But yeah, you know, yoga is, I found out from a chiropractor, an Indian chiropractor in Birmingham. He, he suggested me and he handed me a sheet of paper, had five exercises on it. He said, he said, I've never had a chiropractor tell me this before. He said, these exercises do you more good than I can. I found out that he was right. Well, I tell you. Most chiropractors won't tell you that. Right. Yeah, that's true. Before we started recording, Jimmy, uh, our producer, Lou Kippelman, who lives out in San Francisco, was telling us that you had spent some time. It it wasn't a real extensive amount of time, but you did spend some time wrestling in San Francisco in the Bay Area when Roy Shires was still the promoter. Do you have any memories of working with Roy Shires? A guy who, dare I say, a bit of a polarizing figure in wrestling. Yes, I did. I stayed several months out there. Bob Roop was Booker. Kevin Sullivan was out there. Uh, the Von Steigers that worked here in Knoxville. Several guys was out there that I knew and worked here with here in East Tennessee. I stayed several months. I, mean, I, had, I had Things was tough at the time out there, but... They ended up getting it going. Bob Roop and Sullivan made it go, and the rest of the guys. They all made it grow. Kevin said he ended up leaving that territory on the biggest week he ever had. Because Shires was a little little difficult to work with at times. And, you know, when I miss Tennessee, man, I'm way away from home, and I'm country boy. I need to be home. So we've heard stories about Roy Shire. And one of the things that we've heard, I'm curious as to whether or not you have any recollection of this, is that uh, he was almost like disdainful of the talent uh, in the sense that when it came time for a payday, uh, he would come in with the checks and like literally throw the checks at the guys in the dressing room. Do you ever have any memories of that? No, I did. But, you know, I've heard the stories that he was, I don't know, he, he just seemed to have a you know, a tough time with the boys there on the end for some reason. You know, he had some problems or something, I guess. I didn't really stay long enough to find out. I was really just seeing the country, you know. 
the late Rocky Johnson told a great Roy Shires story at our last fan fest about a year and a half ago. Jeff, do you remember that story? Mm, refresh me. So he, Rocky said that he was one of the few people that always got along with Roy, but he certainly saw how Roy treated everybody, which was not good. And Roy went up to Rocky one day and said, Rocky, I know that when I die, there's going to be a, uh, a, a line of people go, ready to piss on my grave. He said, are you going to be one of them? And Rocky said, no, not a chance, because that line is going to be way too long for me to stand <laughs> in line. So I always thought that was funny, too. But So you've traveled the world. To me, that was great, because obviously professional wrestlers or sports entertainers these days, they used to get to travel the world up until the pandemic hit, but you were able to do it during a time where the territories existed. So you weren't like the, like the traveling circus. And I should say you did work for the WWE several years ago as the father of Jake Hager. So, you know, that's pretty impressive in and of itself in that, you know, you were a territory guy that actually got a part and was able to work for the Federation or the entertainment, whatever we call them nowadays. But being able to see the world for a young man like that and a young man, obviously, that comes from the South, what was that like, like going to all these countries? You mentioned Hong Kong. I mean, how exciting must that have been? It was. I was blessed. Wrestling business took me around the world twice. And, you know, just, I guess, born right place, the right time, a wrestling family. And, I, you know, was around it all my life and blessed enough to have a little bit of height and athletic ability enough to get by. I was able to stick around and do it for almost 50 years. So in seeing the world, saw saw a lot of places. Uh, there was a promoter out of Charlotte, worked with the military. We went to some, to Guam, Okinawa, Diego Garcia, Japan, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, a lot of places. Wrestle, wrestle for the military, and I, I enjoyed that. Anything I could do to make their life a little bit better would felt good to me. So, if you don't mind me asking, let me let me go back to the very beginnings of your career. And of course, as I mentioned, you know, you were involved in a, in a famous wrestling family with with your dad, your uncle, your grandfather. Was there one person in particular that was really responsible? for training you and getting you in the business, or was it sort of like a bunch of people that helped out? Yeah, a lot of people helped out. My dad helped a lot, and, and uh, Robert and Ronald's dad helped a lot. Of course, uh, there was a couple of guys in Louisiana that would, would get in the ring with me. One of them was uh, named Frank Martinez, and the other one was Pancho Vila, was his ring name. They called him Fika. It was uh, Mexicans. Uh, Frank might have been from Puerto Rico, but they were both Spanish. And they both liked my daddy. And they got, they would go and work out with me, especially Poncho. A couple of times we'd go and get in the ring, which was set up there in the sports center all the time. You could go get in the ring anytime you wanted to. That was for me and Ricky Gibson. You know, he was there for a long time. We'd go get in that ring and work out and with Poncho, you know, him and Frank, I learned a lot from them, learned how to drop kick from Frank. And I learned, 
learned how to loosen up from Poncho. <laughs> <laughs> Barry, if I'm not mistaken, Frank Martinez uh, spent a lot of time in CWF, didn't he? He did. And Frank Martinez was one of those guys that never fully, he was one of the one half of the Blue Yankees at, for a period, but he's one of those guys that never got the credit that he was due. And Bill Watts, Cowboy Bill Watts, who turned 82 years old yesterday, by the way, Jeff. That's right. I didn't see um, that. Yeah, Cowboy Bill Watts in his autobiography, great book, The Cowboy and the Cross, written by my good friend, the late Scott Williams. Bill gave Frank Martinez like all this. Uh, he gave him like almost a whole chapter. Like it was incredible. He said, if I ever needed a guy to get something done, Frank Martinez was the guy. Never complained. Never was a prima donna, never an issue, and always came to do his job and was prepared. And he was so glowing. And for me, I love that because, again, you know, the average wrestling fan, especially now, they don't know who Frank Martinez is. But so, you know, for to hear somebody like Cowboy Bill Watts come out with all this praise to me is great. Jimmy, so you do come from, obviously, as Jeff said, it's arguably the most famous wrestling family. Certainly, I would imagine it's got to be the largest, right, Jeff? There's absolutely no, absolutely yeah and your father billy golden obviously involved in the business for so many years you were born into the business what's your first memory of professional wrestling and then did you know even as a small child this is what you were going to be doing for the rest of your life my first memory i guess would uh was watching uh grandpa roy roy welch uh, in the ring I was with my grandmother in the crowd. That's the first match I can remember. And no, I didn't always know that I was going to do it. I lived with Grandpa Roy for a few years. My mom and dad got a divorce. Mama went home to the farm in Yorkville, Tennessee. He had a big dairy farm there. But anyway, when he'd come home on the weekends, I'd get stretched. You know what stretching means, don't you? <laughs> Have a nice weekend. Ah! <laughs> yeah. I'd be screaming for bloody murder. It was always in fun. No blood was ever drawn, but I'd always end up, you know, begging for mercy. <laughs> kind of like uh, the hearts up there, you know, stew. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In the in the, uh, the basement or the dungeon. dungeon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'd get stretched there, but it, it was always in fun, and it taught me a lot. But I never knew that. I would always, I'd be a professional wrestler. I didn't really start getting serious about it till I was in Louisiana about 18, 19. And I was, you know, starting to think, you know, maybe, maybe there's a chance for me. So, you know, started, I started out cleaning the building there, the sports center. We'd done everything. We cleaned the building and we set people down, ushered people to their seats, sold tickets, worked in concession stand. Me and Ricky'd haul garbage to the dump, and then started out. To, uh, finally, got promoted to hauling the ring to the spot shows with another guy down there, a friend of mine. And then finally, got to referee and work with Poncho in Morgan City, Louisiana, when I was about nineteen. And Nick Gulas called, and uh, and we got a job in Montgomery, Alabama. Daddy got a job there promoting, and that's where it really got started. So I, at that time, I was about 20 years old, so, you know, 1970. And I got started wrestling every night there. But literally learning the business from the ground up, huh? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
I so knew I got it. Was a family member, but still, I had sure. to go no, through no. the. I went through the sweat and tears too. So, so I got to ask you, you. You talked about going to see your grandfather as a kid. So I have to wonder if it wasn't at the same time both exhilarating and terrifying uh, as a young kid to see your grandfather in the ring, you know, uh, dishing it out and taking it and stuff like that. Yeah, well, he he was really good at <laughs> dishing it out. Uh, the ones I really remember is uh, Buddy Fuller and Herb Welch and Lester Welch and the Hatfield boys, Luke, Don, and Lee. And now those guys right there in my book, they could do it. Them boys know how to put their tights on, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Of course, I'm, I'm a bit partial because I'm family, but it, it is what it is. They could get it done in the ring. I mean, when you have the crowd so excited that, you know, they're having a great time. I know I was, but watching them, so, you know, that's where I learned a lot, just by watching them. They were really good in the ring, but they had great guys to work with. You know, Saul Weingroff was was managing guys like uh, the medics there in Memphis at that particular time when I was a kid, and they sold out that city auditorium like 13 weeks in a row. But they beat everybody. They beat all the Welches and the Fullers and the Hatfields. It works. They always found a way out, you know. <laughs> and Saul Weingroff, he 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 was uh, managing the uh, Germans, the Von Bronners. Uh, I've seen a lot of great talent come through Memphis when I was a kid uh, because I was living with Roy for, like I said, for several years. And on Monday night, I'd go with him to the matches a lot uh, after I got my stretching on the, on the weekend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, well, listen, Jimmy, let me, uh, we got to wrap it up here. I know your time with us is limited today, but one of the things that Barry and I, you know, we, we like to say, we don't just talk about wrestling. We talk about all kinds of other things. So you're a man who came from the South and managed to make a career that took you literally all over the world. So Barry likes to say, if you, if you got a plane at the airport, it's all gassed up, ready to take you anywhere. Jimmy, what is the one restaurant from your wrestling career that you remember that you say to yourself, man, if I could go back to that place one more time, the food there was so good or just, you know, everything about the the city where that restaurant was in was so good. And I'd like to go back one more time. Where would that be? Well, we, I'll put you on the spot there. We, we ate at a buffet in uh, Hallelujah on Hickam Air Force Base with the top generals there. And the spread that they had there was outstanding. Nice. It wasn't a restaurant, but you know it was really nice. So I've been a lot of lot of good ones, but I'd, I'd say I'd pick that one. That was a nice visit to Honolulu, Hickam Air Force Base. Got to see Pearl Harbor and all that business. Uh, but it was a uh, it was a nice spread. Gotcha. Well, we we have been really fortunate to have Jimmy Golden. Jimmy Golden for, I guess, the old timers like myself and Jeff, maybe some of the newer fans. Exactly, right? Uh, Some of the newer fans may know you as Bunkhouse Buck. You have got two appearances coming up for our good friend, the Captain Nick Massey. The first is the Captain's Corner Happy Hour taking place at 7 p.m. This will be a virtual signing on Saturday, May the 15th. This will go 7 o'clock to whenever. 
These usually tend to take place for two to three hours. And then the next day, I am happy to say that Jimmy Golden and myself will both be in Albany, New York. At well, will, you be, so will you be allowing people to get autographs from you, Barry? Absolutely. You, Photos, you're, you're, autographs. Yeah, you're big time. Big time. I'm, I'm the, I'm, I'm the semi-main event, actually. <laughs> Jimmy's the main event. I'm, you know, but uh, of course, Jeff, I'll be there. And, you know, anybody wants a photo, I, I'll be more than happy to pay them to take a photo with me as, as, as it goes. But as Jeff said, we always ask a couple of questions that don't necessarily follow. But this kind of does. And I'm going to steal this question from a really good friend of mine. You're walking down the street and all of a sudden there's a half dozen thugs coming your way. Who are you hoping is the guy that's on your right side? Uh, Let's see. Hmm. Might be a guy we talked about earlier in the show. Could be. How about Danny Hodge? That's a good one. That's a good one. Yep. He grabs a hold of you. It's all done. Yes, they put the squeeze on them. Yeah. So, well, listen, Jimmy, we want to say how much we appreciate you, uh, and we want to appreciate our friend uh, Nick Massey also for uh, for hooking us up uh, and uh, appearing here on the show with Breaking KFA with Bowdrin and Barry. Buddy, we certainly do appreciate it. All right. Looking forward to being in Albany. All right. You folks get out there and see Jimmy and Nick. And, and maybe, maybe ask Barry, uh, can I have my photograph taken with you? It'll make him feel better. <laughs> it will. I want my picture with you. (laughs) (laughs) Pay you. (laughs) Thanks, Jimmy. All right. See you guys. Now, Barry, let's move on to the special Q&A segment. Barry, we mentioned in part one, this was probably the best set of questions that we've had so far. Would you agree? Absolutely. This is, uh, I think, as you had mentioned, too, and you were keeping track of all the questions, but I think you had mentioned that there was like one joke question and then there was probably a hundred. And it was not by Chris Spiker, which quite frankly was surprising. What? So, that is a little shocking. But yes, you're right. This is, this is, I think, by far the best grouping of questions we've ever had. Yes. So let's go to part two of our Q&A. So uh, next question would be Brian Burke. Uh, Barry, a food question for you. Barry, he wants to know, why don't people caramelize onions properly? Yeah. And you know what? I, I like that question too. And he said, what you're seeing is that most of these are translucent. So I would imagine the answer is going to be twofold. One is they don't know how to caramelize onions properly. I think a lot of people and maybe a lot of cooks, not chefs, but maybe cooks think caramelizing an onion just basically is throwing an onion on a grill, which at that point, you're just going to be getting grilled onions and caramelization. There's actually a process to it. It's the sugars that are involved that actually cause the caramelization. The other aspect, I think, is laziness and time. I think for a lot of people, they look at it and go, yeah, instead of caramelizing, I'll just fucking just brown the onions. That, and people view that as being caramelized. That's my guess. All right, next question. Jeff Lewis wants to know, Barry. Oh, Barry, you have taken Zach over to, uh, to Pitt, uh, to the University of Pittsburgh, uh, the Absolutely. Panthers. He wants to know, what are the best restaurants around the Pitt campus? I love this question, too. So I, I knew you would. When you talk about restaurants and especially in areas that I frequented, I love it. It gets me super excited. So there is a restaurant. And I know Javorski and Demko right now, too, are, uh, are waiting. Yeah, Javorski decided to offer his opinion. The question was asked to bury Javorski. <laughs> Did he offer? Right. Yes. Oh, let me give you my opinion on this yes. question. So I know Javorski is, uh, Stephen, I'm waiting for this. Javorski is <laughs> either going to either agree or skewer me as he does when it comes to Pittsburgh. 
There is a restaurant called Pamela's Diner. It is right off of Forbes. It is the go-to place for people who come from out of town, the parents that come to visit their kids. So I've eaten there numerous times. It's very good. It's a diner. Let's not, this is not the end-all be-all. It's not like they're, they're reinventing breakfast or brunch. But at the same time, it's almost a rite of passage within that area to go there. Uh, there's a Permonti Brothers, which is almost, you know, like right across the street. It's on the same side of the street, but maybe a block down. Original Permontis, or is that just a, it, a second location? It's the second. Yeah, well, there's multiple. There's probably dozens of locations. But I think if you're going to go to Pittsburgh, you have to try a Permonti Brothers sandwich. Some will tell you it's overrated. I personally think it's fantastic. Two other restaurants that are right in that area. One is called Stack. Stacked is a burger and beer joint. It is literally, I think it's on the same block as another restaurant I'm going to mention in a minute. Stacked is where a lot of the students go. The food is good. The burgers are great, but it's the vibe. You know, it's essentially, it's on a college campus. So the vibe, everybody's having a great time. Everybody's positive. Food's good. There is a chicken place creatively called Chicken. And they do they, a lot of thought went into that, apparently. huh? Well, what they did, Jeff, they removed the E in chicken. So it's C actually the, the C, the, the second C and the E C H I K N chicken. And what they specialize in is Nashville hot chicken. And I got to tell you, you you've just recently tried Nashville hot chicken. They do an amazing job. And my daughter, who is not a fan of super spicy food in any form loves this restaurant but my favorite restaurant and this is a little farther it's maybe if you're driving or ubering it's maybe between five and ten minutes it's one of my favorite restaurants probably in the world it's called Noodlehead, and Noodlehead is a it's a noodle shop essentially they do vietnamese cambodian there's korean but they do all these different types of noodle dishes there's pad thai there's all these and everything is super spicy It's also really fucking affordable. You can get in and out for $10 or $11 per person. So it's not like it's super pricey. To get a table, you're waiting. They don't take reservations. You might be waiting an hour, sometimes even longer. Parking in the area, it's in an area called Shadyside. Parking is almost impossible. But when you do get the food and you can sit indoors or outdoors, and we usually sit outdoors if we bring Ozzy, you will be blown away by the food. And this is a super popular restaurant. Why? Because it's really fucking good. So Barry, Brian Huff wants to know, what is your favorite live album or concert? Absolutely. This all goes back to Erg, A Music War. So uh, I think we discussed this on an early episode, like favorite live albums or something, favorite concert. I forget what it was, but Erg, A Music War was a compilation of new wave and punk performances, I believe it was 1980 and 1981, and it was anybody that was working with IRS records, which were at the time the Police, Oingo Boingo, Wall of Voodoo, who else? Uh, there, there was just there was all these different bands that were in here, and uh, I remember seeing this at a midnight movie and walking out. Just you know, again, life had just changed for me. It was incredible. So before I give you my list, I will say that I took this to mean not what I thought were the greatest uh, concert films or the greatest live performances, because, you know, and now Greg Good's going to go live at the Fillmore East or some kind of, you know, (laughs) something like that. So I'm picking 
my favorite live albums and stuff All like right. that. So, so I'm going uh, Bob Seger Live Bullet and Nine Tonight. The Springsteen 75 to 85 a concert or, you know, the live concerts. There's a few really good songs, a little bit on the bloated side. I like his Hammers, Live at the Hammersmith Odium concerts uh, that are out there better. Rod Stewart's absolutely live just because he does a lot of his really old stuff uh, on that particular one. Uh, and Tom Petty live from Gatorville and uh, Pack yes. Up the Plantation. I like yes. uh, both those. And, and I think one of those at least is a film. Yeah, you know, the thing is, there are there are groups and singers that are absolutely spellbinding uh, on studio albums that, that don't cut the mustard necessarily live. And then there's other groups that come off better live than necessarily on studio. Like the studio just doesn't capture everything that makes the group or singer great. You know what I mean, Bear? Well, so to that point, Jeff, you would be 100% correct. Double check. Because, and this is Harold Strassler, do me a favor, lower your volume. Uh-oh. I Getting saw the, ready to put the boots to the cars. Saw the cars live in concert. And I was a Cars fan, Jeff. I knew every song. I know every word. I had every album. And I saw them live, and it was they were just brutal. They didn't sound great, but there was no enthusiasm or personality with the performance. So I was not a fan. Two albums I think we should give a shout-out to. Is that Hey, shout-out. Is that okay for a 58-year-old? Uh, that, yeah, that's that, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. Two, as long I, you don't say she is out uh, or, or <laughs> Kenny Chastain. <laughs> exactly. There's an inside reference that you and I will only get. But one would be, I think Frampton Comes Alive, which yes. was yep. that was absolutely in 1975, absolutely huge. And then a few years later, live at Budokan, Cheap Trick. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want you to want me. Yes, that was uh, really good stuff. And the, the crowd was just nuts. That's what uh, made that but, album, too. Yeah, I think exactly. that crowd, right? Yeah, no question about it. So uh, anyway, so uh, let next question. Uh, Mark Russ, we kind of referenced since earlier, Barry. Why don't restaurants serve more hush puppies? And that's an excellent question. And I have to agree with Mark because I love hush puppies, whether they're traditional hush puppies or even a conch fritter, which essentially is a hush puppy with some pieces of conch put inside of it outside of florida in the deep south you never see it and you could say it's a regional cuisine and maybe to the south maybe it is at the same time we just talked about appetizers earlier what a great appetizer offer some hush puppies with a remoulade sauce i don't know change things up i don't know why they don't i'm gonna assume it is cultural it's definitely something to do with the south and maybe chain restaurants view that as okay we're going to sell a shitload of these down in georgia but all of our restaurants in jersey it's going to be a dead product so yeah. that, that's my that's guess fair. yeah uh, vermont new hampshire not real big right. on the uh, hush puppies <laughs> right. but uh, every i think pretty much every barbecue joint uh, in the south you go to is going to serve you hush puppies so and then they're completely healthy and good for you too sure so uh ian totten old friend of the show barry with a good question and, and by the way there's not going to be one answer on this one i have multiple answers barry what is your favorite martial arts film and there, there really are. And I got to say, so my love of martial arts films, hey, it, it's been uh, heightened up with Chuck Norris. And I don't know if, if we truly count his as martial art films. But if we're looking at, you know, the movies coming from Asia and certainly the early Bruce Lee movies, part of my love for them were the, the, a lot of the revival houses in New York 
would they would show three martial arts films. You would pay like five bucks to go in. You know, those it, are the those, Sonny Chiba movies. Exactly. Sonny yeah. Chiba. Then guys you've never heard of before. And you would go in horrible subtitles or dub overs. But I saw a film and I got to tell you, I went to a divine. You know who divine is, Jeff? Yes. So I went to a divine film festival in 1984 and I was blown away by the festival, but they were doing the week after the divine film festival, they were doing a uh, karate or Kung Fu festival. And one of the trailers they'd showed was for a movie called crippled masters. Have you ever heard of this? No. Everybody, all of the masters were literally all crippled. There's one guy that doesn't have legs. He's got stubs. There's another guy that doesn't have arms. They were all in some form crippled. This isn't CGI. These were people who were legitimately crippled. I can't say that the Kung Fu and the karate was the best, but the concept of what this film offered, especially 37 years ago, and it wasn't meant to be tongue-in-cheek, though it certainly was coming off. It was revolutionary. And I went back and I saw, I think I saw the majority of the Kung Fu movies. And they were all good. They're all, a lot of them tend to be very similar. But Crippled Masters really stood out to me. All right. So here's the ones that I came up with as I started thinking about it. First of all, my favorite Van Damme movie was Bloodsport, which has some great, great action. Ong Bak. I believe that's how you pronounce it with Tony Ja. Uh, that's great stuff. Uh, Rumble in the Bronx with Jackie Chan. Uh, how great are those Jackie Chan movies, especially if you stay through the credits and you see the the scenes like, you know, like where they screw up as they're doing a move and you see all the incredible punishment the guy takes. It's just, I also like this movie. Uh, I think it was Super Cop where he's like in Australia and like the Russians are after him or something like that. Uh, Jackie Chan movies are a staple uh, on a Saturday night. It's 1030 and you got nothing to do oh hell there's a jackie chan movie it's time to watch it uh let's see uh kung fu hustle uh have you ever seen that one bear i have seen that one yeah so here's interesting uh do you remember the james bond movie uh it was this what was it the spy who no it wasn't the spy who loved me it was the one the man with the golden gun okay with christopher lee remember that one yeah so there's a scene where james bond is going to this school uh it's a martial arts school and uh, he's got two women in the car with him. And as he's walking towards the school, all the students from the school have been instructed, go get that guy. And so Bond is getting ready to take on this entire school of martial arts students. The two women jump in front of him and kind of back him out of the way and say, let us handle this. One of the women in that scene was the uh, the landlady in Kung Fu Hustle. Oh, boom. wow. That's some solid movie trivia right there. So uh, I have been watching, haven't completed it yet. I think I've watched three of the Ip Man movies, which are fantastic. Uh, Then, of course, uh, getting back to Jackie Chan, the Drunken Master series, uh, really good stuff. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It's a little foo-foo for some people uh, with all the wires and stuff like that, but I really enjoyed it. And a shout-out to my man, John Mastandrea, the ultimate Bruce Lee guy, uh, Bruce Lee fan. So Enter the Dragon, of course, pretty much like the template for every great movie, kung fu, karate, martial arts movie. Um, I'm also thinking uh, that I left out, what did I leave out? Um, The Chuck Norris. Uh, Chuck Norris films like uh, Invasion USA. It's not really a martial arts movie. It's more like an action movie, though, you know, but uh, some of the ones he did like Eye for an Eye, uh, that kind of stuff, you know, so Chuck Norris is always uh, great in those movies, too. So uh, good question, Ian. 
Michael Herrick wants to know, Barry, TV shows that ended too quickly that you think deserved a longer run. So this was one of the questions that I looked at earlier and I, and nothing came to me offhand. The only show that I could truly think of that I didn't want to end because I felt there was still more that could be done and the quality hadn't gone down was Breaking Bad. And with so many shows, as we know, even if you love a show, the last couple of years can be brutal. I just finished up Sons of Anarchy, and I did seven seasons in less than a month. And I got to tell you, the first four seasons were fantastic. But season five, things started to change. I didn't like season six. Season seven rebounded. But it just, you know, for most shows, they go on too long. I, You know, it's the opposite. They go on too long. Breaking Bad was as good the last season as it was the first season, at least in my opinion. So you could have given it maybe another year or two and maybe extended the storylines. But this was a tough one. I I couldn't, off the top of my head, I couldn't come up with a whole lot. Yeah, I will mention that I am now invested three full seasons into The Wire. So I have two seasons, I believe, left to go. Uh, And that's still really good stuff. Uh, But as far as this question, I came up with two, Barry. I think you will agree with me. Kolchak the Night Stalker. With Darren so there McGavin. you go. There, there's the answer right there. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yep. that, that ran two seasons and was fantastic. It was definitely, you know, it, it was a show for its time. I don't know necessarily they could remake it now uh, because of, you know, some of the yeah. plot lines. It was, it right. was 70 cheesy, cheesiest, yeah. uh, you know. And then the other one I came up with that only lasted three seasons was Deadwood, which is one of my all-time favorite shows. Uh, and just, you know, I, I felt like there was more to flesh out. But uh, they did the movie that kind of wrapped things up. But uh, I wish there had been a, another season or two. So next, Ian Totten. Ian always fascinated Barry with the dark side of life. And he wants to know, Barry, is. what is your most fascinating true crime story? Mm, and, and Lord knows, I mean, Ian does a podcast now about uh, true crime. And we certainly have spent a little time. So going off my I, I don't know if favorite's even the uh, the correct verbiage. But I think if this question had been asked six months <laughs> ago, I think we both would have said the Elisa Lamb story. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, look, that's still a pretty amazing. Unfortunately, I think the, the docuseries on TV took some of the luster off of that. But I guess I'll always be fascinated by the Manson killings. Yeah. There is just something that is almost inconceivable that this occurred the way that it occurred. And the Black Dahlia, the Black Dahlia, and partly because A, it was never solved, but B, the Black Dahlia might be the most famous of all time. And I think it also, it, it spawned so many different, you know, offshoots as far as TV and movies and stuff like that. Everything, you can almost trace so much of that right back to the Black Dahlia killing. So when I started thinking about this, Black Dahlia is an excellent uh, answer there. Uh, the ones I thought of right off the top of my head were Manson and OJ, uh, just because. So there was like a demarcation where, you know, like after the Manson, uh, you know, murders and stuff like that, it, it was almost like, I don't want to say an innocence was lost, but, you know, the the feeling that you're safe in your home uh, kind of was lost. And then OJ, the way that OJ, because it was just such a national spectacle uh everything that was going on with that that trial and it had everyone uh so engrossed in what was happening because of the you know the guy that was a he was a national sports hero and a national celebrity and uh, all the the high profile lawyers that were involved and stuff like that but the one that really stuck to me Barry, this is a case we've never mentioned before on this show 
And I know Ian has, knowing the way he is about true crime stories, I know he knows about this case. Barry, are you familiar with the case of Kitty Genovese? I absolutely was Kitty Genovese, the young lady that was brutally killed in New York and yes. everybody heard her screaming and nobody did anything about it. that was the one she was, I mean, stabbed something like, I don't know, 50 plus times. I don't have the exact number, but it was like, literally, I think it might've been in broad daylight and it was like outside of a, I don't know, a, a, an apartment complex or a housing section. And literally she's being stabbed, screaming for her life and the people in the neighborhood, all heard her scream and nobody came out to help her, you know, just uh, way to go. Good neighborhood to live in. And uh, so that's, uh, that's my answer. The, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name is it Genovese or Genovese, but uh, yeah, that was a, that was a crazy, crazy case bear. Yeah, that was a crazy case. And that was a big deal. And there was a case recently in New York where a woman was being beaten up by a guy and security guards were in a building apparently just watching and didn't do anything about it. And I think they were all terminated based off of that. So ah, it, it's it, a shame they lost their job. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's crazy. But that, that kid at Genovese story, that, that was a big deal back in its day. What was that? That was sixties, right? Uh, I'm not going to answer that cause I don't know the answer, but, but I know it was, it was quite a long time ago. So next question, Aaron Maxson wants to know, Barry, a two-part question. Barry, should Davy Boy have gotten a run with the world title? <sighs> I'm going to say no. I don't. Uh, it, I mean, what it comes down to, and this is, I, you know, if Davy Boy, if they had given him the title, would he have put butts in the seats? Are you asking? And it, the question, I guess, should be, is he asking, was his wrestling worthy of being a world champion? Or would he have been successful? Because would he have put butts in the seats? I don't think the answer to either is yes. I, I don't think when we saw Davy Boy, I think his best years were behind him because he was more focused on building his body. And, you know, he was bloated. He was carrying way too much mass on a on a frame. And I don't think he would have been overly successful in the u.s as a world champion no uh, I, I don't think there's any question that uh if you're booking a card in in england or something like that yeah absolutely. Having, having having david boys your world champion would have been yep. would have been terrific and definitely would have put asses in the seats but you know if you're working if it's wcw and you're booking a card in uh you know tulsa oklahoma is davy boy smith as your world champion gonna mean people are gonna come see him uh, you know, maybe not. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, the Davy Boy Smith of 1985, as opposed to the Davy Boy Smith of say 1992, was completely different because yeah. the mid 80s Davy Boy was unbelievable, and he still showed his strength uh, and was uh, an incredible, you know, uh, at showing his strength. But uh, he wasn't as you know, blowed up as uh, I guess is the best way to put it. He didn't have that look of just being like, you know, like a, the guys did unfortunately in the late eighties and early nineties. So, uh, and next Aaron wanted to know, Barry, given a choice, are you taking Vader or Bam Bam Bigelow? Oh, shoot fight or, uh, no, no, just like, uh, who do you like better? I think, I guess I like Bigelow better. There were times I did like Vader. I thought Vader at times also was overrated, at least in this country. I think his best work was definitely in Japan. Bigelow was inconsistent when Bigelow was on, he was really good, but there were times when he's not, I'll go Bigelow, but yeah, I could change my mind on that one also. Yeah, I, I, uh, I pretty much agree with you. Uh, I will go Vader, but it's like 52 to 48 kind of, kind of right. percentage thing. Yeah. You know, Steven Javorski, who Barry, go ahead. Ask me about Steven Javorski. Who Steven Javorski, who 
Anyway, he wants to know, Barry, what was your all-time favorite small club or venue that you've seen a band? So I have two, and I know I've spoken of one. So there was a place in Hoboken, which is no longer there. It closed down, called Maxwell's Tavern. And this was the venue where Stan Ridgway of Wall of Voodoo was playing a show, and Peter Case was with him. And I, I walked into the bar. I recognized them both, bought them drinks, sat down with them shot the shit and then went down to the the little hole where they were playing so the the venue where they would play you would walk downstairs essentially almost like a basement and there were no seats there were like bleachers but for the most part everybody's standing dark dank one way in one way out so god forbid I believe that might fire. be the first time we've ever used the word dank dank and stank i like it uh, but yeah, and it had to be a fire hazard. There's no, you know, a fire breaks out near the stairwell. Everybody's fucking going down in flames. That's a great spot. My favorite small venue will always remain a place in Bordentown, New Jersey, called The Record Collector. It's in a fucking record store. And they literally will put chairs out, and they put about 30 or 40 chairs. Then everybody else stands, but they bring in some big names. And Stan Ridgway, Wall of Voodoo, that I just mentioned, I saw him there as well. And literally, I was in the first row with Zach, and the first row at that stage was four feet away from Stan Ridgeway. That was a big deal. Mm. Uh, you know, as you are retelling the story, Barry, it calls to mind that, in fact, this question has been asked before in one of our previous Q&A segments. So, hey, way to go, Jaworski. Uh, I will say that, uh, since I mentioned this before, uh, I saw at the Pompano Amphitheater in Pompano Beach, Florida, I saw Huey Lewis in the News and Hall and Oates. Uh, it's a, I'm trying to think how many people would see, maybe like 1,000, 1,500 in an outdoor amphitheater, uh, but really good sight lines. Both bands on both different occasions were really good. And so, uh, so that's my choice. Next, we got Brian Jones. Barry, what is your favorite Brat Pack movie? Is, it, is this the Brian Jones? Uh, well, I, the, the Brian Jones from the Stones is dead, so I'm yeah, going to assume say, it's I not him. All right. Favorite Brack Pack movie. But if he's alive, I appreciate the fact he's a fan of Breaking Cape Bay with Bowdoin and Barry. Absolutely. He's uh, he's with Elvis. They're like exactly. in Mexico somewhere at a resort. Yeah. Probably 16 Candles. It's a film that I can still watch and I still laugh. And, you know, John Hughes did some good work there. You know, I, I like uh, The Breakfast Club is a good movie. St. Elmo's Fire, he did not do, but that was a Brat Pack movie at the end of the day. But 16 Candles, I really liked because that was kind of the beginning of the Brat Pack, I guess, with Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall. And it just, it's a funny movie on so many different levels. And we've talked this movie, what, to, to death in some of the early uh, I'm checking my answer here, Barry, and it says right here, uh, 16 Candles. So that would be the correct answer since we both have picked it. Nice. So uh, thank you for the question, Brian. Next, Al Hamilton. I don't think we've ever had a question from Al Hamilton. So thank you for participating, Al. Barry, thoughts on Don Morocco? Al Hamilton. Wasn't he? Uh, oh, that was Al Molinaro. I was thinking, uh, who was the guy who played? Al on Happy Days. Yeah, it was Al Monaro, um, and he pretty much yeah. fucked up that joke, so go right ahead, sir. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I'm good for something. Don Morocco is, I think he is one of the absolute greatest of all time, regardless of whatever role he was playing in wrestling. I saw him as a baby face a couple of times, but especially in 77, and he was kind of the 
precursor for Stone Cold Steve Austin in the sense that he was this kick-ass babyface, and he would his matches were the the they looked to be the stiffest, they looked to be the toughest. Morocco sweating profusely in every match spit flying out and you could just hear some of the punches. He was great. And then as a heel, he's legendary. I mean, it's Don Morocco. I would say this, the best way to answer this question, if somebody has a negative thought on Don Morocco, and I mean, let's, we can remove the bloated WWF stint where he was like eating meatball sandwiches in a ring. Yeah, but that was hilarious. Let's but it was funny. I mean, at the end of the day, look, even the fucking Fuji Vice stuff and all those little vignettes were really great. But Don Morocco at his peak, he's as good as anybody. And I had this conversation with Aaron Maxson's brother, Nate, a week or two ago. I, I was a guest on his podcast and one of his favorites is Don Morocco. And we were talking about, and he said, do you think Don Morocco could have been world's heavyweight champion? And my contention was the only thing holding back Don Morocco with that was the fact that politically, I don't think he fit into the mold of what the NWA at that time was looking for. They were pretty set and dry on, on who was going to be champion as far as appearance. But Don Morocco, if he had, you know, if he was not Hawaiian and I realized Hawaii's in the U S I think he could have been a world champion. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I know, uh, if you mention the word Don Morocco around, uh, Howard Baum, I think, uh, he may get an erection. That's how big a fan he is of Don Morocco. I'm being sarcastic. Of course. Uh, no, Don was great. Uh, he, tremendous interviews, uh, great matches with Backlund. Uh, my very first early days as a wrestling fan, uh, Don Morocco versus Jack Briscoe, you know, oh, just absolutely. matches and Don Morocco being put over as the first guy to ever reverse the figure four leg lock. Think about that at the height of Jack Briscoe as a, as a performer and as a wrestler, the fact that they had this young kid, this surfer guy from Hawaii reverse the hold that Jack Briscoe had gotten over all over the world. That's how strong they were pushing Don Morocco. So and that'll show you what the, what the promoters thought of him. Absolutely. And just a, a couple of trivia notes on that one, Jeff. Don Morocco was actually not even the scheduled opponent for that night. He replaced somebody, took over that spot. And Don had been, that was 1974, Don had been a mid-card wrestler. He would get an occasional main event if he's teaming with Andre or somebody like that. But for the most part, he was maybe that Chief J Strongbow Ivan Putzky role, maybe even a little bit lower. And at that point, Don Morocco's career was made when he had that match with Briscoe and he reversed the figure four and almost won the title as we were, you know, Gordon sold it to us. Don almost walked away with the title and they were comparing the two, you know, the, Jack Briscoe and Don Morocco could be brothers. There's a similar build, similar hairstyle. The way they wrestled was similar. Don Morocco's career was made off that match. Barry, imagine that concept. You have a match with the champion. You almost win, but you're made by the fact that you gave the champion such a struggle. Hmm. That's a concept we don't see nowadays, huh? Yeah, well, yeah, they don't even get me started. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next, on that Spence, Spencer Benson <laughs> wants to know, two-part question, Barry, who is your favorite musical supergroup? Oh, that's a good one right there. So there's a few of them that are out there. There is the, is it the Highwaymen, which is Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Johnny Cash. 
Cash, and then there's the traveling Wilburys, which I mean, come on, Roy Orbison, Tom Petty, George Harrison, and Jeff Lynn. Uh, and Jeff Lynn. Uh, and Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan. It's going to be one of those two, and I'll probably go with Wilburys just because uh, Petty and Orbison are both in there, and I love both those guys. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's probably my my answer also. But I will also give a shout out to uh, to Cream, which is a great uh, band, super group, and uh, of course Crosby. Were they just super group though when they formed? Were they already, or did they become a super group after the fact? Mm, I will leave that to the listener to determine. Also, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Yes, that's true. We're a super yeah. group. So, uh, uh, also, uh, Spencer wants to know, Barry, what is your favorite deli sandwich? Big shout out to my man, Mitch Seinfeld. Mitch is a former professional wrestler, promoter, and lives up in Jersey. And he's been, at, every time I post Katz's cold cuts or deli meats he's always there you've never been to harold's in edison new jersey you've never been on every post i do that i am meeting up with mitch on wednesday and we're going to harold's deli to try their pastrami and the answer jeff is pastrami i could eat pastrami 24 7 we have a place up here called Larry's that is a, a good sandwich shop uh deli and uh you know i'm because i'm not into the whole veggies on my uh, my food so for me it's pretty traditional i I like a good uh ham and swiss whether it's on a ciabatta bread if i can get it if not you know on a nice uh maybe sourdough with a little dark mustard and light mayo that kind of stuff you know and every once in a while i'll go for a nice turkey sandwich or a nice roast beef but uh i'm not especially exotic when it comes to my choices of sandwiches um next up good question from ben martin ben martin wants to know Early 1987, Continental, the AWA, and CWF were reportedly, as was reported by Dave Meltzer, in negotiations to do something together. If Crockett had not bought Florida, who could have stepped in? So before you answer that question, Barry, I went on the old speed dial, and I spoke to my friend, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. He's relocated back to Tennessee, Barry. He, he's in Knoxville or somewhere. Uh, in I think he's more around uh, the Great Smoky Mountains. He's in a small town, he told me. Okay. And so uh, so I said, Ron, what about this? Is it true? I said, brother, don't kayfabe me. And so uh, he said, absolutely not. Nothing was going on in 1987 in the early part of the year. But he did say in 1988, a year later, and I think by that time, uh, Crockett had already come into Florida, that he uh, had a meeting with Jerry Jarrett and representatives of the AWA to uh, perhaps work together, but nothing ever really came of it. So that's a, but an interesting question, Ben. Thank you so kindly. And then, oh, Barry, our old friend, has mentioned the uh, top of last show. Jesus Salas Rodriguez wants to know, Barry, what's the dish that you've never tried that you crave? I don't, uh, I don't, and that, that was the other one that I was referring always to. Good the to use the word, always good to use the word crave, by the way, Barry. Crave's a great, there's a, so there's a, this will be for Brian Huff. There's a chain of restaurants based out of Minneapolis called Crave where, that I ate at once. It was fantastic. We have uh, a Crave here in Cumming, Georgia. Do you really? Yes, we do. Oh, wow. And we don't have one here, which makes no sense, right? I don't, Jeff, I don't think that there is anything that, again, when it comes to food, which is probably my uh, my biggest passion of everything, if there's something, I'm going to get in the car and I'll drive two hours to try it. I don't, you know, so I don't think there's anything. The only thing I've never tried that I guess I'm curious about, only because I've heard people rave about it. There is a Lebanese restaurant in Philadelphia 
that does grilled sardines. Now, the thought of that doesn't do a thing for me, yet people that have gotten them say that they're absolutely fantastic the way that they're prepared. I guess I would want to try that, but yeah, I can't think of anything else offhand. So I have mentioned before on the show, and I'm going to go to you, Barry, to give me the proper pronunciation, P-H-O. Fuh. Okay. Fuh. Yeah, it's not it's not faux, it's pho. That's pho. why I, that's why right. I wanna, yeah, well pho, you You've too. You've never had pho? Uh so anyway, the 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 place is like literally three doors down from my wife's office where she works and I keep going to the office and going is today the day I'm going to go in there and have that pho and I haven't done it yet. But I want to and I know you've been meaning to get me to do it, haven't done it yet, Barry. Yeah, I, well, I actually want to be there. So if you can hold out, uh, <laughs> I will take you out to lunch. We'll get so we have a place in Philly. There are two to three locations, and uh, it's called Chew Noodle Bar, and they do their creative spin on pho. And it definitely isn't traditional. And they do this spicy one with brisket that is fucking unbelievable. One of my favorite things of all time. And if I'm ever in that area, I always go to get it. You, you would love that, Jeff. Yeah. There's nothing like bizarre or, you know, there's no like eyeballs floating in it. Well, that's nothing comforting. Weird. Yeah, I'm saying there's nothing weird about it. It's soup, noodles. They throw an egg in there, some brisket, but the spicy factor is so good. Very next question, once again, from John Lee. John Lee from where? Wales! Wales! Anyway, John wants to know, Barry, what is the last foreign country that you visited? I believe it's Mexico. I believe that was the last time I was out of the U.S. And I want to say the last time I've been out of the U.S. is uh, when I went to Japan in uh, 87. Good Lord, that's been a long time. And an interesting question from John. He says, Booker, do you have a dual citizenship since you were born in Japan? Fascinating question, John. The answer is no, because although I was born in Japan, shout out to my good folks in Yokosuka, or as they say it over there, Yokosuka. I was born on a U.S. naval base, and because I was born in a U.S. naval base hospital, I'm considered an American citizen because that's American soil. But it's a fair question. Don't you agree, Barry? Okinawa. Yes, I do. No, yeah. it's not Okinawa. It's I know it's not. Yeah. So anyway, next question, Barry. I believe we both have questions from friend of the show, Adam Dumau. Adam asked me my question for the podcast. How would your life be different had you never met Barry? Oh, I'd be a much, <laughs> much poorer individual. I, he says, I mean, I know you would have had a podcast with someone else. Well, I, yeah, who knows if I remember the story correctly, but what else would be different? Mm, let me think, Barry. Well, I'd probably have to access Bob McKeon for my CWF info or Greg Good. Let's see what else. Uh, hmm, I wouldn't have uh, gotten a start writing for a certain newsletter. And I wouldn't you have would had somebody that I consider my best friend uh, for all these years. Yeah. And, the, and also, I hooked you up with the publisher of your two books. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about that other hookup. But that's another story. Uh, that's another story. Uh, so, you know. so uh, what was Adam's question to you, Barry? Adam's question to me, Jeff, what would your life be like had you never met Jeff? Oh, I'm going to get uh, sad now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So to answer that quickly, I would have two less books on my bookshelf. Uh, I am currently were they looking perks at, or did you pay? I think they were perks. I Thank actually you. think they were perks. I'm looking at both of them, but uh, you know, it that it, it that's a it's a unique question. It's a hard question to answer. Obviously, the podcast is taken out of it, but I think my world at the end of the day would have been smaller. And uh, 
you know, throughout the years, our conversations, we are very, we're different, obviously, in a lot of ways, but we're also very much alike in a lot of ways. And we have similar interests outside of wrestling. So I, I think my world would have been a little smaller and I probably would not have laughed as much as I had. That's one thing when Jeff and I get together, I'm always, I'm almost always laughing. It's, you know, something's going to give with that. So yeah, that's my yeah, answer. And yet no one's ever asked me, Jeff, have you ever done stand up? Quite frankly, a little insulted at this point. Anyway, next question, Barry, Ariel Agbalog. Is there a restaurant from another country that you really want to try? Absolutely. And it was mentioned on the podcast today, I believe. It's a, I don't know if it's part one or part two. It's Ribera Steakhouse in Tokyo. It's a good one. I've been there. Uh, that's, uh, I know. I'm, I, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think if there's any, any other restaurants that I've heard about that I very specifically want to go visit. Then they're really, you know, I've been to Ribera, so I, I really, maybe that's cheating if I answer that. And, and part of the appeal of Ribera is the fact that you basically haven't had anything like a steak dinner for the entire visit to Japan. So that's what makes it so compelling. Like after all this time where you're having like these little small pieces of chicken or steak with rice, and then you get this flat out steak dinner. It's kind of like, Oh, come to Papa. So uh, next Brian Huff, who's getting a little pushy with the questions here, Brian, you've asked a few now, uh, Barry jelly filled donuts. Yay or no. nay? And if yes, what is your favorite filling? Apps hundred percent, absolutely jelly filled donuts. That's a no brainer. I love the jelly filled donut. It's, so if you're talking a standard donut shop, I would probably go with a cherry filling. If you were going curiosity donuts, they do like a blood orange that is just through the fucking roof. Also $3 a donut. So, but that's jelly. It, jelly to me is like a gift. You know, one of my favorite things when I get a jelly donut, Jeff, is to eat the donut and to to try to you know break it in half so I eat all the jelly and then the parts that don't have jelly I pray that some of that jelly has spilled on the wax paper that they've given me the donut and I can just scoop it up and eat it right there. Uh, I thought you were going to say you're going to lick the wax paper and uh, I would lick the wax paper. Well, okay, well, I yeah. think that's the title of this show: licking the wax paper. Amen. So uh, next question, Randy Pritchard, of all the famous people you've met. <laughs> Who were you the most nervous around? Ooh. I don't know if he's talking wrestlers or or general celebrity types. Who was I? I so I am happy to say, as as you are, Jeff. I think we're we're past the nervous stage, which is good. But I will tell you, and I've told this story before. When I got to meet Reggie Miller, and this would have been ninety six, I believe ninety seven, somewhere right around there, maybe even ninety eight. I was pretty fucking nervous and Reggie Miller came into my restaurant. I went over to him, you know, in my best stammering and stuttering, uh, Mr. Miller, uh, I, you killed the net. You know, I was blathering like an idiot. His eyes were everywhere except on me. And he said, yeah, okay, good. And walked away. But, <laughs> but I got to tell you, I I'm was sure Reggie so, remembers that to this. Oh, day. absolutely. He never, he was anywhere, but standing in front of me mentally, which was really funny as I was talking, but, that's probably the one time, and I, 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 I'm sure that I made zero sense to him in that conversation. So yeah. So I, as I, you were answering the question, I was sitting here thinking, who would it be? And then I recalled the time. I don't think I've ever told this story either, Barry. I want to say it was like about ten or fifteen years ago 
when in fact one Dwayne the Rock Johnson had jury duty in Broward County, Florida. And what they did was they, uh, to accommodate him, they had him sit in the office as opposed to sitting out in the regular audience and, uh, you know, getting hassled and bothered by people the entire day. He sat in the office. He was still there, uh, you know, eligible to be called and all that kind of stuff. So my friend who was the uh, director of the uh, jury room at that time called me. Hey, on the down low, we have uh, the rock here in the jury room. If you want to come say hello. And uh, so I went down there and, uh, yeah, it was kind of it was kind of cool meeting The Rock, you know. And uh, I, you know, I mentioned I said, "Oh my God, I remember when your dad was wrestling and stuff like that?" He was very nice, very affable, and stuff like that. It was a very, you know, two minute kind of meeting. It's not like I was able to sit down and, "Hey, let me give you an uh, uh, an interview for the Observer" kind of thing. But uh, no, very nice guy, and uh, yeah, that would uh, probably be my guest pair. Have you yeah. ever met The Rock? I, oh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> other than the fact a- when you were ten years old. So I, uh, so the last time that I saw the rock was at his father's funeral and the time I had seen him before that was probably 17 or 18 years earlier when he was hosting Saturday night live. My that wife, was a great was, episode, by the way, yeah, yeah, my wife, it was with ACDC, I believe was the musical guest. And my wife was working for NBC at the time. And I said, oh my God, I haven't seen him. So she went, I went with her. I was in her office. She went down to the production floor. She gave him a photo of us as kids. And because I I had a feeling if I stood in front of him, he was going to have no idea who I was. And he immediately goes, oh, my God, where is he? Whatever happened to him? And uh, she goes, this is my husband. She calls me. I come down and I got to see him. And then I saw him at his dad's funeral, which would have been January of last year. And he, he just couldn't have been any warmer, any nicer, any more gracious. Gave me the biggest hug that, you know, that I may have ever gotten in my entire life. Uh, and I, I think the world of him. I, you know, I don't, to me, he's a great guy. Definitely a guy that does not seem to have been affected by his stardom and celebrity the way that so many have, uh, have been there. Yeah, absolutely. He just really just a, a nice guy. And I think he's there. There is a humility. And I think a lot of it also comes from his mom. His mom is a tremendous person. Anybody that's ever met her, she's a fixture at the CAC every year. And she's a real person. You know, these are people that really struggled. There was a period, you know, there was a period when Rocky's career ended when, you know, there was just no money. You know, he was working at like Best Buy or something like that. And, you know, Dwayne was he had no money. And all the stories of him growing up with no money are almost legendary. And he never forgot that. And he's highly intelligent. That's the big thing. The Rocky. Yeah. And and I know on the on the young on the show, the Young Rock show, his mom is presented. How can I put this? I don't want to say far more favorably than his dad. He's the boss. Yeah. She was the boss. Though. But she, and she definitely kept him grounded, that's for sure. Absolutely. And I think still does. I think there is a connection between those two where she does, in a sense, keep him grounded. Not that he needs it now as he's approaching 50 years old, but I don't think he ever forgot. But he, you know what else, too? I think it is the intelligence factor. We're, this is a guy that's got you know almost a Menza-like level of, of IQ the rock Dwayne. So super bright can certainly play off of life experiences and just never forgot where he ever came from. Yeah. So next question, Daryl Jerry says, Barry, do you believe it's plausible that professional athletes past and present from other sports genuinely respect pro wrestlers more than members of the general public whom are not wrestling fans? Can you repeat that question one more time? Basically, do you think that uh, other pro athletes respect 
wrestlers more than average non-wrestling fans do. They probably do now. I don't think that would have always been the case. I think the answer is yes, because I think when the kayfabe wall was officially broken, you know, it, these guys are athletes. And it isn't like the old days of like Killer Carl Cox with a big beer gutter Dick Murdoch, two of the best wrestlers ever, in my opinion. But, but guys now look like athletes as well. Guys are conditioned. They go through the best training, et cetera. So I think there is a different level of respect currently than there would have been, say, 40 years ago. Yeah. Next question, Nate Maxson. We're getting both the Maxson boys here. Uh, I have a affinity for redheads. Which do you prefer, Molly Ringwald or Christina Hendricks? So first, let me say Nate is married to a redhead, and I have complimented Nate on his selection of wives. He is married up and married up huge because his wife is extremely beautiful. Christina Hendricks is the answer to that question. Yeah, I that's, I, that's I will what I top does. that, and I will say Alicia fucking Witt is my favorite. Okay, good choices. Uh, I would go with the Christina Hendricks uh, line there. So, Chris Chenault, if you guys had not spent 30 years in restaurants and the courthouse, what other career might you have chosen? Absolutely. So I think about this all the time, and it's certainly at this stage of my life, there's there's no redoing it. But uh, this is something I thought. So I love the ocean. I love beaches. I love being outside. I I love the sun. I love, love large bodies of water. It would have come down to I could have pulled a Costanza and become a marine biologist. Or I could Is have, there anybody here that's a marine biologist? <laughs> We're looking for a marine biologist. Uh, yeah. The sea was angry that day, my friend. <laughs> so marine biology would have been something. Because, you know, I, I figure I'm in a pair of uh, shorts. I'm knee deep in water in the Keys studying marine life, that would have been great. Or a lifeguard. You know, I was a lifeguard when I was younger. I never, you know, it didn't strike me as a career. I was making probably uh, beer money off of it. You don't make any money. And uh, about a month or two ago, I was reading about some lifeguards in California that make six fucking figures. So, uh, yeah. So if I could have been at the beach as a lifeguard, making six figures and benefits, you know, yeah, that's probably something I would have done. I wonder what, you, you know, you, you talk about the, what they make in California. I wonder about, I don't know, Australia, where there's such a large uh, population of sharks that are off on the Great Barrier Reef and stuff like that. I wonder what they pay their lifeguards out there. I don't know why that just came to me. Robert Goodian, uh, go ahead and look that up for us. Do a little research. Get back to us uh, after this episode's over. Mark Wiggins wants to know, you guys are big time diners. Wow, do we have him fooled, Barry? Uh, <laughs> which, if any, Michelin star restaurants have you tried? Oh, and this is interesting. So I tried the farmer's daughter, which is a Michelin starred. Oh, you're talking about the restaurant. I thought you were maybe dating somebody new. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, not, not that. No, no, no. It was, uh, there was, (laughs) remember the old glow TV show, the farmer's daughter. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She's 60 now, but still, she's still hot in the Daisy Dukes though. You know, uh, there is a restaurant called the farmer's daughter. And it is a Michelin. And I believe that may have been the only one. There's not a lot. Philadelphia has zero Michelin star restaurants. Washington, D.C. has a, a few and California's got a few and they, they're spread out throughout the country. So that probably. But I got to tell you, my greatest dining experiences don't come from fine dining. They come from more street type of food. At least that's what I tend to enjoy more. Yeah, I think we have Mark has us confused with fine diners. We don't go for dining. We go to eat. 
You know, oh, yeah. I, I, I don't go in the feed bag. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I watch Gordon Ramsay's show and we'll sit there and go, oh my, wow, why is he putting that on there? Right? You know, it's like, give me, you know, his, I, my wife was telling me the burgers at Gordon Ramsay's place are like, it's like $45. It's yeah. a fucking hamburger for God's sake. Enjoy sense. it. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. By the way, Barry, I don't think I answered Christian Alt's question. What would my career path have been? Chris, I'd like to think it would be doing something similar to what I am doing now. Because uh, when I was in college, <clears throat> before they asked me to leave, uh, that's what I was uh, taking a uh, Courses in was uh, radio broadcasting and stuff like that. So I would have loved to have gotten into uh, radio broadcasting. Uh, Mike went a shout out to our boy, Dave Lamont, by the way, Barry. Uh, Mike Winter wants to know, Barry, what would you do for a Klondike bar? Uh, what would I do for a Klondike bar? Is it any type of Klondike bar? Because some of those are know. really good. I would, uh, I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> I don't know what I could say on air that I would do for a Klondike I, bar. I, I, I don't think I'm a huge Klondike bar guy. My favorite ice cream uh, bar slash sandwich. I like the, uh, uh, shoot, I can't remember what brand it is, but it's like the one that the strawberry shortcake and oh, they have the chocolatey clear good. bars. They yes. have an orange, orange creamsicle too. That's really top notch. Uh, that's good stuff. So I tell you what, Barry, we're going to wrap up the Q and a segment now with a question again from Brian Huff. Wow. What is this, like 17 questions for Brian Huff? Brian he's, Huff episode, yeah. He's trying, he's trying to get himself a guest spot here on Breaking KP with Bowdrin and Barry. Right. Uh, Lou, Lou, step into the program here because uh, Brian wants to get your thoughts. Brian wants to know about experiences the three of us have had meeting Dr. Mike Lano. Lou, why don't you take it first? Okay. And I, I had told this story before on a, I forget which, 605 Star Wars. I'm not familiar with 605. What is that? Is that a podcast? <clears throat> some, some would say it's super. Well. And it was the weirdest thing because I was, I want to say, 24, 25 years old. I was working, and one day I get a call, or at least somebody calls into my office. And uh, the boss one of the bosses was a husband and wife team comes to me and says, Lou, you have a phone call from a Mike Leno, which was really weird because I, I kind of knew of Mike Leno, but, uh, I never had any personal interactions at all with him. So how did he get my work phone number? I'm not sure. So I end up talking to him. Next thing I know, he's been talking to me for about an hour about all sorts of stuff. And it, it it was just a really, it could not have been kind of more random. Eventually I, I tied it together and I think he, he might've seen my name from just a short thing in uh, Wade Keller's pro wrestling torch because uh, Wade Keller uh, called me for a, he was asking subscribers about uh the, the Vince McMahon steroid trials and stuff. So I don't know, but however he investigated and, and tracked me down, Mike Leto did a good job, I guess. So yeah, I haven't had any, uh, any further contact with him, but I know he's, he was in the, in my neck of the woods for a number of years. I had heard he moved down to LA recently, but I'm not sure. Anything with Mike Leno can't help but be cloaked in mystery. Mm. Barry, what about your experiences with Dr. Mike? 
Yeah, so I met Mike for the first time. I want to say it was 91. There was an MMA show that took place in Miami at the Knight Center with Fujiwara and Kem Shamrock and some other guys. And Lena was there. And real nice guy. But the first thing that strikes you about Lano is how hard he tries. And he was putting me over to me. He was putting me over to the point that I was like starting to roll my eyes. And he was saying things like, yeah, I just did a report on this big show that was out in California. But if I had met you, I would have put you over. And it was just weird because I didn't want him to put me over like, you know, but his reaction was, I think he tries to ingratiate himself really hard with people that he meets and it comes off as like, you know, just relax, just be yourself. You don't need to be this guy or whatever you're trying to do. And throughout the years, I've had a lot of correspondence with him. I've had some phone calls. And he's a bizarre guy. I don't think he's a terrible guy. I, I got to tell you, I definitely don't. I think he's, there's definitely something there. There's definitely something where he's possibly a little bit screwy, but I, I don't think it, he's got this malicious black heart, you know, at all. No, and, and I have to say that my uh, experience with Mike, I'm trying to remember the first time I met him, uh, it had to be sometime, uh, late eighties. Maybe it was at one of the Crockett cups. If he went to one of those, but, uh, he's never been anything but nice to me. I will, uh, get the occasional random email from Mike where he puts me in a group email and I know, uh, Alex Marvez is in the group and a couple other guys, maybe with AEW and stuff. And, and he'll sit there and he'll give us like some news thing from, from Japan, uh, you know, uh, and it's, it's usually like a smaller group that I, I don't really follow that much. Or it's like something that happened on the independence out in California. And, uh, you know, it, it's just like, it'll come out of nowhere. And I'm like, I'll sit there and think, why is he sending this to me? You know, right. I, I mean, it's not that I don't appreciate that he takes the time to include me in this group email, but it's just like, you know, it's, he's including me in this random email that, uh, you know, let's put it this way. If he was doing it on a weekly basis, I could say, oh, okay. I'm getting the weekly email from Mike with his thoughts on what's going on. Way. But like, literally I'll get one and then like 27 or 28 weeks will go by and then I'll get another one. And then like 35 weeks will go by and they'll just come like seemingly out of nowhere. And it's not like the stuff he sends me is some like, Oh my God, so-and-so, you know, like, uh, uh, Antonio Inoki or Baba passed away. Something like a huge news item like that from Japan. It's just like, Oh, let me tell you the recent results uh, of this uh, small independent uh, women's group that had 75 people in the audience. And I'm like, why is he telling me this? Uh, you know, but right. anyway. So again, I don't have anything uh, other than that, which I think is, is kind of amusing. It's not like I can sit there and say, oh, Mike's a big POS. You know, he's not, you know, not to me. He's never been anything. I understand there are people that have had their issues with him. I know several uh let's just say photo tugs that we know uh, Mike is famous for kind of jumping in front of people to get the old shot uh, and around ringside, but he's never done anything uh, bad to me, Brian. Uh, so those are my, uh, my thoughts on uh, Dr. Mike Lano. So guys, what do you say? It's been a hot tick here, uh, which is, I guess my new favorite expression. So uh, we'll wrap it up by mentioning that we are a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network, Lou Barry, anything finally to offer. I'll let Sweet Lou take us out, but uh, no, this has been a fun show. Is this the six-hour show? Is this? The I one think so. Doing? This will definitely right. be more than one episode of Q and A. I can tell you. That. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yes, so, indeed. 
So for our, our producer, the sweet man, Lou Kippelman, how you were going to say? I was going to say a, a good breadth and depth of questions from our brother shippers. Yes. Very I good uh, batch of questions. Ever. Best questions we've ever had. Yeah. Which makes it, again, such a shame that John Doe couldn't come up with a quality question. Way to go, John. Anyway, so I tell you what, since someone suggested at the very beginning, we raise an adult beverage, the memory of Al Z. Chris, we miss your father, buddy. Have a good one.